0: Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Tuesday, February the 6th. This is Doug Fagan, your volunteer reader, coming to you today from the studios, as always, of the Audible Local Ledger here in cloudy and gray, Mashpee, Massachusetts. When I came in today, the car thermometer said 32 degrees, and we have some very light snow flurries, which are kind of like very small ice crystals. So if you happen to go out onto a deck or a porch, be careful today as it could be quite slippery. So with that being said, let's take a look at the weather for the Cape and Islands and the South Shore today and throughout the rest of the week. Today, once we get past these morning flurries, it's going to turn partly sunny, with a bit of a breeze as well, and a high of 36 degrees. So these last couple of days prior to today, we've had some very nice sunshine here on the Cape, And let's hope that continues. Tonight, we're going to get down to the low of the freezing mark at 32 degrees with some low clouds. Wednesday, we go up to 37 degrees. And again, it's going to be considerably gray and cloudy with an overnight low of 30. Same holds true for Thursday. We're going to have a mostly sunny day on Thursday with a high of 42 degrees and an overnight low of 30. 30. So mostly sunny Thursday. That's the next best good day. Friday's going to be some sun as well with a high of 43 degrees and overnight low of 40. And then Saturday, we're going to have pretty warm temperatures, actually. 49 degrees, but mostly cloudy with showers in the afternoon. So overall, except for Thursday and maybe a bit of uh, time Friday afternoon, we're going to have mostly cloudy skies. But Thursday and Friday, we could see some sun again. Taking a look at the consistent, what are normally consistent, temperatures around the Cape, we have 36 in both Buzzards Bay and Wareham, along with that being the same in basically Sandwich, Mashpee, Falmouth, and Barnstable and Hyannis. Dennis 37, Chatham 38, Brewster a high of 38 today, as well as East Ham and Truro, and Provincetown 36. Taking a look at water temperature today, pretty cold for swimming, folks, 39 degrees out in Cape Cod Bay, wave heights 4 to 8 feet. And Nantucket Sound today, water temperature. A little colder, 37 degrees, wave heights 3 to 5 feet, wind direction north northeast 15 to 25 knots. Out on the islands, we have 37 degrees at Oak Bluffs on Martha's Vineyard, 37 again at Edgartown, and they too are having the snow flurries in the morning with partial sun in the afternoon. Same holds true for Nantucket Village and Sikonset out on Nantucket. 38 degrees at Nantucket Village, 36 at Sikonset. Snow flurries and sun later this afternoon. So there you have it, friends. A look at the weather for not only today, but throughout the week here on the South Shore and Cape Cod. And again, if you're going outside on a deck or a porch or the sidewalks even, it's wet. And on the wood decks or the laminated wood, it could be a bit slippery. So please be careful. All right, let's move on to page one of today's Cape Cod Times for Tuesday, February the 6th. Well, friends, here on page one of today's Tuesday, the 6th of February, Cape Cod Times, there's only one article of local interest, and it says, as a headline, Want to see a total solar eclipse? And if so, Cape Coders must hit the road. This article is written by Eric Williams of the Cape Cod Times, and here it is. For Cape Codders who want to see a total solar eclipse, it might be a good time to start making travel plans. Happily, it won't be a long road trip to reach an area where the moon will completely, but briefly, block the face of the sun on April the 8th. Folks who prefer to stay on the Cape will still be able to marvel at a partial solar eclipse, which will reach approximately 90% totality, right outside their doors. But it might be fun to gas up the old jalopy and head out on a sunblock safari to see the full show. So where can you see a total solar eclipse? Well, according to the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, of course, as the acronym the path of totality will range between one hundred and eight and one hundred and twenty-two miles wide and will run through several nearby states including new york vermont new hampshire and maine Northern portions of Vermont and New Hampshire look to be the closest totality locations for Cape Coders. Communities along the path include Lancaster, New Hampshire, and Burlington, Vermont. Lancaster, which features a charming downtown area, is a bit closer to Cape Cod, roughly a 240 mile drive from Hyannis. Burlington, a lively cottage town with tons of restaurants and shopping options, is about a 285 mile journey. Eclipse events are popping up in both states with schedules and descriptions available on the Hello Burlington and Mount Washington Valley Chamber of Commerce websites. Burlington events include a solar eclipse after party featuring a performance by Lady Moon and the Eclipse, a seven-piece band known for radiating positive music, and a message that explores the cosmic soul, at least according to the billing. So what time is the solar eclipse in April? Well, one thing is for sure. You don't want to be late for a total solar eclipse. While there will be more than a two-hour period of partial eclipse before and after totality, the the time frame for the actual totality as a whole is a matter of minutes. In Burlington, totality will begin at 3.26 p.m. on April 8th and end at 3.29 p.m., a matter of only 3 minutes. In Lancaster, totality will begin at 3:27 p.m. and end at 3:30, again only 3 minutes according to NASA. Here are some sunny facts that will help you get ready for the eclipse. So, starting with what is a total solar eclipse? Well, any celestial object, like a moon or a planet, that passes between two other bodies can create an eclipse by obscuring the view of objects like the sun. A total eclipse occurs when the moon appears as the same size as the sun and blocks the entire disk, leading to a period of darkness lasting several minutes. So what time will the eclipse be on Cape Cod? Well, according to Eclipse2024.org, the April eclipse event will run from about 2.15 p.m. to about 4.40 p.m. in Hyannis, with approximately 90% of the sun being blocked by the moon shortly after 3.30 p.m. So, how does one safely view the eclipse? Well, protecting your eyes is paramount during an eclipse. Here is important information from NASA. Looking directly at the sun without proper eye protection is unsafe except during the brief total eclipse phase, which is called totality. This happens only within the narrow path of totality. At all other times, it is safe to look directly at the sun only through special purpose sunglasses with solar filters, such as so-called eclipse glasses that comply with the transmittance requirements of the ISO 12312-2 international standard. Ordinary sunglasses, even very dark ones, are not safe for looking at the sun. If you are inside the path of totality on April 8th, 2024, remove your solar filter only when the moon completely covers the sun's bright surface. As soon as the sun begins to reappear, replace your solar filter to look at the remaining partial phases. Outside the path of totality, there is no time when it's safe to look directly at the sun without using a solar filter that complies with the transmittance requirements of the international standard. The American Astronomical Society maintains a curated list of approved vendors for sale of safe solar viewers and filters on their website. All right, friends, there you have it an article about the upcoming total solar eclipse of the sun by the moon. And that will happen on April 8th around 3.27 in the afternoon here on Cape Cod. Mark your calendars now, if you're interested. Okay, friends, we're now moving over to page three, the Cape and Islands page of today's Tuesday, February the 6th edition of the Cape Cod Times. And we do have a couple articles of local interest here, so I'll read them now. The first one says, Failing swings and a retaining wall lead to Centerville playground closure. It's by Heather McCarran of the Cape Cod Times. And here's the article. There will be no more playing at the Centerville Playground, at least for now. Citing hazardous conditions, Barnstable town officials on Friday announced they've closed the 50-year-old playground at 524 Main Street until further notice. The playground is now surrounded by barriers, leaving its swing sets, slides, crawl tubes, xylophone, and funnel ball play area very silent. There were numerous hazards that led to the sudden closure of the playgrounds, said Community Services Department Director Chris Canella on Monday. These include failing pressure-treated retaining walls that hold back soil from an elevated part of the site, inadequate wood-fiber fall protection material around play equipment, Concerns about the safety of swings with deteriorating chains and loosened fasteners, and safety concerns about other components that need immediate replacement. We're investigating our options and formulating a plan as to the next steps and we'll keep the public informed, Canella said. In August, the site was closed down for at least two days to remove old wooden play structures, also necessary because of safety concerns, officials said at that time. Canella said there's been limited use of the playground during the past few months with the onset of winter, but when the sun comes out and the temperatures are tolerable, people love to come to the playground all year long, thus the importance of shutting the site down until it's deemed safe for play. So, what's planned for the Centerville Playground? Well, the town is working on a complete overhaul of the popular play area in coming months. That's a project that's been in development for the last two years under the direction of the Community Services Department, the Department of Public Works, and the Centerville Playground Committee. The basic vision for the playground calls for a nautical theme with a wooden sailing ship play platform, wooden tree house with climbing elements, and a slide for the younger age group and a new swing bays that include an accessible swing and toddler swings. Other features include a webbed crab trap, doomed climbing, oh, I'm sorry, domed climbing structure with play elements inside, a sea lion climb-on structure, a surfboard play element, a teeter-totterer, and an at-grade we-go-round, and a shipwreck with webbed netting for climbing. The concept was developed with input from the public gathered a series of meetings directly from community members. Well, and so... How will the renovations at the Centerville Playground be paid for? Well, a total of $816,793 in Community Preservation Act funds have been tagged for the playground renovations. Additionally, $827,376 in capital improvement funds will go toward parking lot and access improvements at the Centerville Recreation Building. Work on the project will begin sometime this year, and Canella said it's expected to be finished in the spring or early summer of 2025, that being a year from this spring. There are numerous components to the overall site, and the town seeks to complete all of the extensive work simultaneously so as to limit The disruption, Ganella noted. The most recent designs were reviewed with the public on November 21st. The meeting can be viewed online at www.youtube.com/watch. All right, there's that article about the Centerville playground and the renovations to be done. However, they won't be finished until a year from this spring, so I'm assuming it'll be closed until then. All right. Moving on to another local article. This one says Falmouth Firefighters Union signals temporary stand down with the town. This article is by Walker Armstrong of the Cape Cod Times staff. Here it is. An ongoing legal dispute between the town of Falmouth and a firefighters union over an emergency order assigning firefighters to fill in as dispatchers, has taken a turn toward resolution. The union has withdrawn its motion for an injunction against the town, according to recent court documents. The injunction, filed on January 5th in Barnstable Superior Court, sought to halt what Firemouth Falmouth Firefighters, Local 1397, said was an illegal move by the town that violated their collective bargaining agreement. Court records show the motion to withdraw the injunction, filed on January 16, was reached jointly between both parties. In light of the party's efforts to resolve the matter amicably, as grounds for this motion, the parties have come to a temporary resolution, thereby no longer necessitating imminent assistance from this court, so said the court document. It's unclear whether either side will push for further litigation. In January, union attorney Norhum Chituro said union members filed agreements with the town for violating the terms of the firefighters' contract. She said they also filed an unfair labor practice claim with the State Department of Labor Relations for violation of Massachusetts labor law. So what actually is the dispute between Falmouth and the firefighters all about? Well, Falmouth issued an emergency order in October, after the town became aware of a critically low staffing shortage at the Falmouth Emergency Communications Center. Court records show the town said the number of dispatchers at the center would be down to three by December 29, if nothing were to be done. At first, records show, vacancies were filled by Falmouth police officers. On December 14, the town issued another executive order permitting Falmouth Fire Chief Timothy Smith to assign firefighters to fill dispatch shifts, a move the union said they were unaware of. On December 19, two days after a Falmouth firefighter was critically injured on scene, After falling through the floor of a burning building, records show assistant town manager Peter Johnson Staub emailed union president Stephen Bush asking him to attend a meeting to discuss the emergency order. The union said they had no prior knowledge of the meeting court records have shown. Bush said he was at Mass General Hospital in Boston supporting the firefighter who was injured and would be unavailable to meet on such short notice. Johnson-Staub responded by saying the executive order needed to be implemented because of the critical shortage of dispatchers for the department. In a follow-up email on December 21, Johnson-Staub asked the union to meet on either the 21st, the 22nd, or the 26th of December. Leah Barrault, general counsel from Barrault & Associates, representing the union, said in response they could not meet since it was before a holiday weekend. So the union says it's been months of foot-dragging. Your emergency order has been out since October, and you are just this week cramming it down the fire union's throat, Barrault said in the December 21 email. It is now truly an emergency due to your months of feet dragging. That is on, your, on you, not the union or me. Baralt said the, they would make themselves available the first week of January, and the town did not respond. Fire Chief Smith, when issued the executive order on December 21, directing the department to provide personnel to serve as dispatchers when regular dispatchers aren't available. Smith temporarily closed a fire station that night and assigned two firefighters to receive dispatch training at the communications center, according to court documents. The fire chief says this is a work in progress. This is a work in progress, and I'm working to best address how to fulfill our directive and have the least impact on personnel and staff. Smith said in his December 12 memo, It's been a stressful week, and I'm confident in the professionalism shown by all. Bush said in January that firefighters have been working dispatch shifts almost every day. Records show a call on January 4 was significantly delayed by 8 to 10 minutes because of staffing shortages resulting from the reassignment of personnel to dispatch. To fulfill the dispatch reassignment, records show the department that night was below its contractual minimum staffing of 16 firefighters. Both the town of Falmouth and the Firefighters Union have recently declined to comment. Well, we'll have to see how this plays out, as I doubt the town of Falmouth will want a shortage in fire uh, personnel operations but they also have to have dispatchers. So we'll follow this as the weeks uh, proceed. All right, let's move on. We have a couple of obituaries in today's paper, so I'd like to move to those now. The first is that of Thomas L. Brogan, that's spelled B-R-O-G-A-N, and it has a dateline of sandwich, and here it is. Thomas L. Brogan, age 84, passed away in his sleep on January thirty-first. He was born January 4, 1940, in Yonkers, New York, the son of Thomas and Lillian Brogan. After several semesters of college in Roanoke, Virginia, and Pace University in New York, Tom realized college was not for him. He worked for several years for John Wanamaker's department store, where he met his wife, Susan Andres. They moved to Newton, Mass, in 1966, and then in 1975 built their home in Sandwich, Mass, where they lived for 49 years. They had recently celebrated 60 years of marriage together. Tom was a well-known professional stained-glass artisan for over 54 years. He traveled extensively up and down the eastern Seaboard. Board, but was best known throughout massachusetts and cape cod his work brought joy to generations of families over the years tom was a kind creative person and possessed a sharp wit his sarcasm and perverse sense of humor Kept every one laughing and his family on their toes because you never knew what he might say. Tom admired nature, enjoying landscaping, gardening, and keeping the bird feeders full. His quiet yet strong presence will be missed. Thomas was predeceased by his parents. And surviving, in addition to his wife Susan, are his daughters Kathleen, and her husband Edward of Marston's Mills and daughter Amy Brogan Biacho and her husband Michael of Chester, New Jersey. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made in Tom's name to either the Sandwich Fire Department, 251 Cotuit Road in Sandwich, or the Centerville, Osterville, Marston's Mills Fire and Rescue Emergency Services Department, 1875 Falmouth Road, in Centerville. This next obituary is not really an obituary, but rather a simply a notice. It has a picture of a young nurse, and it is of Lillian Rita Kajenka. That's spelled K-R-A-J-E-N-K-A. It says Derry, Connecticut. Lillian Rita Kajenka of Derry, New Hampshire, passed away. I'm sorry, Derry New Hampshire, not Connecticut, passed away suddenly on February 1st. For Lillian's full obituary and service information, please visit peabodyfuneralhome.com. So very brief, just a notice of passing for Lillian Rita Krajenka of Derry, New Hampshire. Well, friends, that does it for today's obituaries. Those two being the only ones included in the Tuesday, February 6th edition of today's Cape Cod Time. Speaking of the date, this being February 6th, I hope a few days ago you remembered to pay your property taxes, which were due February 1st. Now let's take a look at the lottery results of recent note. And taking a look at the Mega Millions and Powerball, Mega Millions, obviously nobody's won recently. As that jackpot is up to $358 million. The Powerball jackpot is up to $228 million, so both are way, way up there. So let's take a look at the most recent results starting Monday, yesterday, February 5th, with the numbers game. The midday numbers game drawing, those numbers drawn were these 8933. Three. Midday numbers 8933 three from yesterday. Now, the evening drawing for the numbers game, here are those numbers three two three zero, thirty two thirty for the evening numbers drawing. Mass Cash again drawn yesterday. Here are those numbers 10, 14, 17, 24, and 29. Again, Mass Cash yesterday 10 14 17 24 and 29 now the most recent power ball drawing which i noted that nobody has won or did win that was also drawn yesterday and here are those numbers one two 27 30 and 67 with a powerball number of nine again powerball for yesterday one two 27, 30, and 67, with a Powerball of 9. Now, the most recent Mega Millions was drawn last Friday, the 2nd of February, and here are those numbers. 11, 22, 42, 64, 69, and a Powerball of 18. Again, Mega Millions from last Friday. 11, 22, 42, 64, 69, and 18. And finally, the Mega Bucks that was drawn yesterday. Here are those six numbers. 6, 12, 15, 16, 17, 43. Yesterday's megabucks, 6, 12, 15, 16, 17, 43. And for those of you who continue to play, I say to you, good luck, players. I hope someone locally wins out there love it for me to be me or you. Well, friends, having exhausted most of the local and regional news, we'll now turn to articles that have a national flavor. Now, this article, even though it talks about worldwide references, could affect us as well. Hopefully not. The article is entitled Worldwide Shark Attacks Rise in 2023, the year's 14 fatalities include 10 labeled unprovoked attacks. And here's the article. Before actually reading the article, I'll reference the picture here of people at a beach with obviously a shark warning sign, a huge one posted. It said surfers experienced 42% of the shark bites worldwide, with swimmers and waiters a close second at 39%. Spearfishing was the most common activity occurring when the provoked bites took place last year. Well, it would certainly make sense that if you're in the water surfing or swimming or spearfishing, you're certainly more likely to be attacked than you would be on land. Anyhow, here's the article. It's been 50 years this month since Peter Benchley's novel, Jaws, hit the bookshelves. Benchley's ...spawning the blockbuster movie of the same name. It remains a classic, but its famous villain isn't keeping people away from the beach. Both shark bites and fatal shark attacks ticked up worldwide last year... ...according to the University of Florida's international shark attack file. Sixty-nine unprovoked shark bites were reported last year... ...up by six over the five-year average reported the shark-attacked file. Those numbers are still within the normal range, said Gavin Naylor, director of the Florida Museum of Natural History's shark research program. But fatalities are a bit unnerving this year. Worldwide, there were 14 confirmed shark-related fatalities last year, including 10 classified as unprovoked, double the number from the previous year. Two of those fatalities were in the United States, one in California and one in Hawaii. Australia saw 40% of the 10 fatalities. Three were surfers in one remote surfing spot, the Eyre Peninsula, that's spelled E-Y-R-E, off the coast of southern Australia, named and known for its untamed beaches and surf breaks. One death was confirmed in the Bahamas, Egypt, Mexico, and New Caledonia. As always, the United States led in unprovoked bites with 36, about 52 percent of the worldwide total. Sixteen of those 36 bites were in Florida, slightly below average. The state still led the nation in shark bites, but that's never a surprise because of the state's extended to- coastline and tourism industry, said Naylor. Surfers experienced 42% of the bites worldwide, with swimmers and waders in a close second at 39%. Spear fishing was the most common activity occurring when the provoked bites took place last year. A provoked bite is one that occurs because the shark was either intentionally or unintentionally provoked. The shark attack file records include 22 attacks listed as provoked last year. Scientists prefer to focus on the unprovoked attacks for research purposes, however, said Naylor. We're biologists, and we want to understand the nature and natural behavior of the animals, not the unnatural behavior, said Naylor. We want to understand the animals' behavior is modified by people throwing stuff into the water, or fishing, or trying to have a selfie taken. Fifteen bites were reported in Australia, including the four fatalities. Naylor surmises the attacks that happened, in part, because the country has taken action to protect its seals, as well as sharks. The seal populations are getting healthier, he said. More seals, more white sharks. And if those aggregation areas with a lot of white sharks happen to be near good surf breaks, then you know when you're flopping around on a surfboard, you look a little bit like a seal. Beach safety in Australia is second to none, said Joe Miguez, a doctoral student in the shark research program. However, if you go to remote regions where beach safety is not in place, there's certainly a higher risk of a fatal shark attack. attack. That's in part because when an attack happens near lifeguards and beach rescue, you can get a tourniquet on much sooner and save the person's life in addition to white shark populations on the coast australia also has bull sharks in and around its estuary rivers a fatality from a bull shark attack occurred in early twenty twenty three in a brackish river near the coast brackish of course friends meaning a mixture of salt water and fresh water in florida eight of the bites were in volusia county home of daytona beach and new smyrna beach which has long been dubbed the shark bite capital of the world. This area consistently leads in bites, although many local surfers joke most are just nibbles. Elsewhere in Florida, there were two bites each in Brevard and St. Lucie counties, and one each in Miami-Dade, Palm Beach, Escambia, and Pinellas counties. Three bites were reported in North Carolina, two in South Carolina, and two in California Including a fatality. One bite was reported in New Jersey. Four bites occurred in New York, including one in New York City. Naylor attributes that activity to improving water quality and growing fish populations. It causes a lot of fear, but the reality is you're putting a lot of people in the water on a hot day with bait fish in the water, he said. Elsewhere, bites were reported in Costa Rica, Colombia, Brazil. New Zealand, Turks and Caicos, Seychelles, Ecuador's Galapagos Islands, and South Africa. Bites by white sharks have gradually increased since Jaws was released, the researchers said, but that's not because of aggression on the part of the sharks. They conclude it's more a combination of more people being in the water and a stronger emphasis on reporting bites and fatalities. Despite the slight uptick in bites, Naylor said concerns over shark species, even though some local areas, appear to be experiencing an increase in shark sightings. Shark fishing mortality is still on the rise, despite regulations intended to reverse that decline. A study published in Science in January by researchers in Canada and the United States estimated the number of sharks killed each year increased between 2012 to 2019, rising from at least 76 million to 80 million per year. Roughly, 25 million of those sharks were from threatened species, concluded the study led by Boris Warm, a marine ecologist at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. Widespread legislation designed to prevent shark finning was successful but did not reduce shark deaths overall, the researchers said. Regional shark fishing or retention bans did, however, produce some success. You're more likely to win the lottery than to be bitten by a shark, the Shark Attack Program observed. But if you're going into the water, here are a few tips. Of course, stay out of the water at dusk, dawn, or after dark when sharks typically feed. Wear bright colored swim clothing and jewelry. Swim in front of a lifeguard and stay close to shore. Watch for birds diving into the water or fish jumping out of the water because it might be a signal that sharks are in the water. If you're in Australia, do your best to not look like a seal. Just a personal comment. One of the things it says here is wear brightly colored swim clothing and jewelry. I've heard that, on the other hand, don't wear jewelry in the water as the shine of jewelry in the water could appear to be a fish and thus attract sharks. So if I were you, I would not wear jewelry in the water. That's just me. All right, friends, there you have it. an article about various shark attacks throughout the world. All right, friends. Turning now to the lighter side of things, let's take a look at the dear column, Carolyn, or Ask Carolyn column, where writers write in about their problems, and the sagely Carolyn offers advice. The title to this one is "No Empathy for Friend Who Cannot Adopt." Here's the letter that someone wrote in, dear Carolyn. A friend from high school, let's say Susan, turned 45 this year. All of us been, have been pretty close. Most of us have kids. Some of us don't, however. It's not a big deal. Susan and her husband found out recently that they can't adopt because of their, quote, advanced ages, and they're trying with no success. I had no idea they wanted to adopt, or else I would have told her that myself. We don't really know what to say to Susan because, well, between the two of them, they have six degrees, so surely they know that starting a family at 45 was not the most realistic choice, right? Again, no judgment there. It's more that I'm shocked at their attitudes. The only thing Susan ever says on the issue is, quote, "'It's just not fair.'" I'm not the person I was at 35 or 40. I'm so much more mature and ready now. Okay, but babies tend not to care about things like that. I know she knows all these things. She has to, right? So I struggle to find the best thing to say. Is there any chance she feels some weird pressure to have kids and she's grasping at straws to defend what others might see as an unpopular choice? And this is signed anonymous. Carolyn says the best thing to say is I'm sorry and I think you'd be great parents. Then you remain present for your friend friend through her disappointment, saying no judgment here does not make your comments non-judgmental any more than my saying this is a diamond makes some pebble go bling. I also can't think of anything for a baby that a mature parent. You have to know this, right? So be a friend. I swear it won't kill you. Plus, hello, men become bio-dads in their dotage. Stop eye-rolling her pain. All right, there you have it. Evidently, there's a particular age beyond which adoption agencies do not consider you to be a viable parent. And that's the gist of this article. All right, let's move on. Here's an article about family that might be interesting to you. It's entitled, Raise Kids with Empathy, Not Narcissism this is a usa today article and here it is think dating a narcissist is hard try raising kids with one mental health experts warn co-parenting with a narcissist can be one of the most challenging undertakings and with it comes a landmine of psychological issues. Trying to be a healthy co-parent or co-parenting with a narcissist is really one of the hardest things you'll ever do, says Chelsley Cole, a psychotherapist and author of If I'd Only Known, How to Outsmart, Narc- Outsmart. Narcissists, Set Guilt-Free Boundaries, and Create unshakable self-worth. There's no such thing as co-parenting with a narcissist because co-means with, and you cannot co-parent with someone who's countering your every move. The mental health toll of parenting with a narcissist leads us into this next paragraph. Raising kids with a narcissist is difficult no matter if you're still partnered with the narcissist or separated. Cole says abuse tactics deployed by narcissists include smear campaigning, gaslighting, and trying to use your children as pawns against you. As a result, parents in these situations can experience anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, hopelessness, loneliness, and isolation as well, not to mention also many feel pressure to keep their pain under wraps for the sake of their kids. It's like trying to stay calm in the middle of an active war zone because of all the stress and chaos and abuse, Cole says. Sometimes you find yourself acting in ways that aren't really you because of the amount of stress that you're dealing with. Stephanie Sarkis, a psychotherapist and author of Healing from Toxic Relationships, Ten Essential Steps to Recover from Gaslighting, Narcissism, and Emotional Abuse, that's the name of the book, says narcissists notoriously try to cheat rules. That goes for parenting plans and custody agreements as well. It is high conflict, high stress, and you have someone that will try to change the rules on you, Sarkis says. It can cause chronic stress, both for you and your children, can make you question your value as a person, can make you question your value as a parent as well, and it can potentially cause issues for you in future relationships. For many, one of the most challenging things about raising kids with a narcissist is seeing how that narcissist treats their children. Those narcissists will try to use kids against their former partner by gaslighting or manipulating children into distrusting their other parent or by blaming the other parent for things like that are the narcissist's fault. They also go out of their way to disrespect and demean the other parent to their kids. It's especially hard when children are too innocent to see how harmful the narcissistic parent is being. Sarkis says, "Calling out or disparaging the narciss- narcissist to your kids is almost certainly a bad idea." She encourages parents parents to teach children about the importance of boundaries, empathy, and treating people with kindness. You don't necessarily need to bring up the parent, but you can talk to them about healthy boundaries with people in general. She says, "It's also okay to tell your kids if someone is treating you in a way that you're not comfortable with." Then it's okay to say no. So, are you raising kids with a narcissist? Well, then follow these tips. Document everything. Parenting apps that track drop-off and pick-up times, as well as other aspects of an agreed parenting plan, can prove helpful in keeping the narcissist accountable, says Sarkis lawyer up is another recommendation it's imperative to have a family law attorney that is knowledgeable in high conflict co-parenting and finally model empathy for your kids and validate their feelings be the counter to the narcissist to your children by showing and teaching respect compassion and empathy This will lower the odds your kids will grow up to be all narcissists. All relationships with narcissists are surface level, which means you can fill the gaps and teach your kids actually what a healthy relationship looks like. All right, hopefully none of you are out there in that kind of a situation. But if you are, there's a description, which you probably already know, and some helpful tips as to how to deal with it. All right, friends, let's move on. Well, friends, if you've been listening to the news at all, you know that California is experiencing some dire circumstances due to just immense rain, mudslide, flooding, and just terrible weather conditions. And this next article, entitled Floodwider, Floodwaters, Mudslides Put Californians in Peril, addresses that situation. And here it is. Meteorologists and officials sounded alarms Monday as the tail end of a powerful atmospheric river storm deluged California with more heavy rain, mudslides and flooding, and several feet of snow in the mountains. Up to 37 million people, about 94% of the state's population, are or have been at risk for dangerous floods from the storm accuweather meteorologist warned life-threatening conditions may evolve extremely quickly in some communities accuweather senior meteorologist alex sanowski said a man was killed in yuba city north of sacramento when a redwood tree fell on him in high winds. The National Weather Service warned that an unstable weather pattern could still generate waterspouts or small tornadoes. That being said, the Weather Service warned that flash flooding is a much greater threat than any weak tornado that the storm may spawn, and that dangerous flooding was likely across parts of Los Angeles County. Additional rainfall totals of 5 to 8 inches were forecast, which would bring the 48-hour totals as high as 8 to 14 inches of rain for some locations. Los Angeles recorded more than 4 inches of rain Sunday, breaking the record for the day by more than an inch. In San Diego, Mayor Todd Gloria issued an evacuation warning for low-lying, flood-prone areas that were battered by heavy rains last week. Ventura City firefighters had to rescue a man who was trapped on an island in the Ventura River Sunday with water rising around him. They shut down the Route 101 freeway overpass northbound and lowered a firefighter using ropes and an aerial ladder. No injuries were reported in this rescue. In the iconic Hollywood Hills area, the Weather Service warned Monday of an extensively and extremely dangerous situation unfolding with life-threatening landslides and flash flooding in northern california the storm swamped streets and toppled trees and power lines across san francisco a very rare hurricane force wind warning was posted for the area and winds exceeded sixty miles per hour with wind gusts recorded as high as a hundred and two miles per hour in marin county the equivalent of a category two hurricane so those folks out in California are really suffering and there's no real end in sight within the next couple of days. All right friends, let's All right, let's friends, let's take a quick look at sports. As many of you know and probably many of you are interested in, the Super Bowl pitting the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs will occur this coming Sunday. And this article references the Super Bowl. It says breaking down Super Bowl And here's the article. The San Francisco 49ers are hoping to make history in Super Bowl 58. Kyle Shanahan has the chance to tie the record for a franchise with the most Super Bowl wins when his squad takes on the Kansas City Chiefs on Sunday in the NFL championship. Patrick Mahomes and company for the Chiefs can make their mark on history, too. With a win, the Chiefs will capture their third title in five years, joining the ranks of dynasties. Other teams that have had a title dynasty bestowed upon them include the 49ers, the Patriots, and the Pittsburgh Steelers. So, who has the most Super Bowl wins of all time? Well, it's New England Patriots, as many of you know, with six. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady won six Super Bowl titles in their Mega Dynasty run. It started in 2001 when the six-round pick Brady replaced an injured Drew Bledsoe. The team won three championships in four years. They had a decade-long gap before capturing their next Lombardi trophy and then won three in the next five seasons the pittsburgh steelers also have six the steelers of the 1970 are a who's who of football greats terry bradshaw franco harris and lynn swan powered the offense while the steel curtain de- defense line of joe green lc greenwood dwight white and ernie holmes bolstered the defense three decades later ben roethlisberger heinz ward and troy palamalu earned super bowl victories twice more. Now, the San Francisco 49ers currently have five Super Bowl wins. Joe Montana won four Super Bowls for the 49ers, including back-to-back titles with fellow Hall of Famer Jerry Rice. When the quarterback retired after his stint with the Chiefs, Steve Young stepped in and earned the franchise its last title to date. The struggling Dallas Cowboys have five. Quarterback great Roger Staubach helped put the star on the map with the Cowboys' first two Super Bowl wins in the 1970s. Then Jimmy Johnson ushered in a new area as coach of greatness in the 1990s with the Triplets. Few offenses have been as dominant in NFL history as Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, and Michael Irvin. All right, bringing up the next closest group are the New York Giants with four Super Bowl wins, as well as the Packers. Bill Parcells and Phil Simms teamed up for the franchise's New York Giants' first two championships. Eli Manning and Tom Coughlin brought the Giants back to glory with two more titles. Super Bowl 42 featured one of the greatest highlights in Super Super Bowl history, David Tyrese. Helmet catch against the Patriots. Greenbow Packers have four. The Vince Lombardi Trophy is named after the head coach of the Packers who won the first two Super Bowls. Packers had a 29-year gap before hoisting the trophy again in Super Bowl 31 with Brett Favre under center. Aaron Rodgers brought the hardware home its most recent time. Now there are three teams with Super Bowl wins. Oh, I'm sorry, four teams that have three Super Bowl wins. The Broncos won back to back titles with Hall of Famer John Elway and Terrell Davis. Washington won Super Bowls 17, 22, and 26 with head coach Joe Gibbs, quarterback Joe Theisman, and Hall of Fame receiver Art Monk in an impressive run during the 80s. The Raiders also have called three cities home and have just as many super bowl titles they won super bowl 11 under john madden and then super bowls 15 and 18 with tom flores the first hispanic head coach in nfl history So teams with two Super Bowls, Tampa Bay won Super Bowl 55 to give Tom Brady his seventh ring. They also won Super Bowl 47 behind the stalwart defense that included 49ers general manager John Lynch and Hall of Famer Rondae Barber. The Ravens have won two Super Bowls along with the Rams and the Miami Dolphins. So there you have it, friends. I look at Super Bowl history with that game coming up. This coming Sunday, and I believe it starts at 6.30 p.m., pitting the San Francisco 49ers, who are currently about a two-point favorite, against the Super Bowl uh, former champion, Kansas City Chiefs. It'll be an interesting game to watch, I'm sure. Here's an interesting article, friends, of somewhat regional interest, and it says fishing regulators say no. catching more baby eels has a dateline of portland maine where the eel fishing for elvers these miniature baby eels occurs and here's the article fishermen who harvest one of the most valuable marine species in the united states hoped for permission to catch more baby eels next year. But regulators said Monday the tight restrictions that have been in place for several years are likely to remain the same. The tiny baby eels, which are often worth more than $2,000 per pound, check that out, folks, $2,000 per pound, are also called elvers. They are a critically important link in the worldwide supply chain for Japanese food. They are harvested from rivers and streams in Maine, sold to aquaculture companies, and then raised to maturity, and then resold as food. The Atlantic State's Marine Fisheries Commission needs to set a new quota for next year and beyond because the current management plan is expiring. The commission said Monday it's only considering one option for next year's limit, and that is a little less than 10,000 pounds, the same the le- same level the fishermen have been allowed to catch for several years." The commission is under pressure from fishermen who want their quota raised, and from environmentalists on the other side who would like to see it reduced. Fishermen who have advocated for removing dams are good stewards of the elvers, said Darrell Young, president of the Maine Elver Fishermen's Association. Many fishermen run through their quota in just a few days, he said. That tells you how thick the eel population is, overabundant. Young said that will give us a good leg to stand on to get more quota. The Commission's EO Management Board also still needs to decide the number of years the new quota levels would remain in place. The board will hold a public hearing about the matter on February 29. Over the years, members of the Atlantic States Commission and other regulators have voiced concern about the decline of worldwide EO populations and the threat of poaching. Maine regulators have responded by implementing new controls to deter illegal fishing. The eel fishing season happens every spring, and Maine is the only U.S. state with a significant legal fishery for elvers. Last year's harvest was worth about $2,031 per pound, orders of magnitude that are even more than the price for lobsters or scallops. All right, there you have it. Uh article about elvers, these baby eels, sold on the market for a being a delicacy in Japanese food. Well, friends, we're quickly coming to the end of today's broadcast of the Tuesday, February 6th edition of the Cape Cod Times. And speaking of time, you've... If you're a regular listener to this broadcast, you've often heard me reflect upon how quickly the time seems to be going by as I only come in here to the studios once a week on Tuesdays, but it seems that time between those sessions passes ever so quickly. So I thought I'd end today's broadcast with a reference to some quotes about the passage of time as it affects all. Here's one. Now is our time. It's our time to chase rainbows and build castles in the sky. It's our time to create and fulfill a life that we love because someday it will no longer be our time. Another one. Time is more valuable than money. You can get more money, but you cannot get more time. And finally, a clever one. And here it is. The bad news is time flies. The good news is you're the pilot. Well, with that thought in mind, friends, I'd like to sign off today. This has been Doug Fagan, your volunteer reader, coming to you from Ashby, Massachusetts, and the studios of the Audible Local Ledger. It's been my pleasure to read to you today. And I'm wishing you good health and good times as you head throughout today and into next week. I will be looking forward to reading for you again next Tuesday. Until then, so long for now.